0: Hear the word of the Lord. So, he, so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at uh, Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's in Jerusalem, the sheep gate, uh, uh, by the Sheep Gate, a pool uh, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, "Uh, "'Do you want to be healed?' The sick man answered him, "'Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me.' Jesus said to him, "'Get up, take up your bed, and walk.' And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked." Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They said to him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. (laughs) Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word, and we need your spirit to come be our teacher, that we could understand uh, the things that you've said to us, Um, translate these words that I speak into each one of our individual lives, and lead us by your spirit to faith in Jesus and obedience to your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we are studying two uh, healings that Jesus performed that are recorded back-to-back for us in the Gospel of John, the end of John chapter 4, the beginning of John chapter 5. And these stories show us two men who encountered Jesus in the midst of truly terrible suffering. Uh, One man has a son who's sick and is about to die. The other man has been an invalid for 38 years. But what we find out is that the first man, whose son is sick, twice it says in the passage that he believed Jesus. And the second man who's healed as well, the, man, the invalid, it never says anything that he ever had faith. And I think that what these two men who are experiencing suffering represent for us are two different responses to suffering in our life. And it's uh, suffering is an immensely important topic in the Bible. Actually, you could probably say that, you know, if you ask the question, uh, what is God's response to why there's so much suffering in the world and what is God going to do about all the suffering in the world? The answer is the Bible. I mean, that's pretty much what the Bible is. It's God's answer to all the problems in the world. This is what he's going to do. It's a complex answer. Um, but it's not just that the Bible is about suffering, but in many ways... The most important events um, of our lives will be about how we respond to suffering. You know when our marriage gets hard, when tragedy strikes, when you feel d- deep disappointment that something you really hoped for didn 't happen, when uh, you 're trapped in a sin that's destroying maybe yourself is destroying your relationships. Uh, When you meet adversity in your life, often we look back and say that when those things happened, those were some of the key pivotal chapters in my life story. And it's fascinating that most people who have either rejected their faith in God or have a very deep relationship, spiritual relationship with God, both people, interestingly, uh, will attribute either their lack of faith or their deep relationship with God to periods of suffering. That's when they either lost their faith or that's when their faith really deepened. And so, you know, the people who lost their faith say, you know, I was at this time in my life and I went to God and I said, you know what? Uh, if there's one prayer you're going to answer, God, this is the one I need you to answer. And I'm putting my heart out there and I need you to do this for me. And God didn't come through for me. And so I rejected and I lost my faith. And other people say, you know, I'd lost everything in my life. Everything had fallen apart. And I found that the only thing I had was the Lord Jesus. And for the rest of my life, he's, he's the, the one that I can trust more than anyone. How, they both happen in the midst of suffering. And so this morning, we're going to look at two different responses to suffering and adversity in these two men by answering these three simple questions. First, what does it look like when we respond to suffering with faith? Second, what does it look like when we respond to suffering with unbelief? And third, how does Jesus respond to them both? Okay, so what does it look like when, we respond, when suffering comes into our life? What happens when we have faith? What does it look like when we have unbelief? And then how does Jesus respond to both of these men? And there are, uh, this passage is full of answers to those questions. So three questions this morning, and this is the first. What does it look like when we respond to suffering with faith? And I think there are four answers to that question that I want to point out in this first story about the man whose son is sick and about to die. So first thing is this. Faith emerges in the midst of desperation. Faith emerges in the midst of desperation. And if you look at verse 46, the beginning of this passage. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose Son was ill, and when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, there is probably no more desperate situation than to have a sick child that you can't cure, you can't help. There's probably no greater experience of powerlessness of feeling out of control, of feeling weak, and there's nothing I can do. And it was this kind of desperation that brought this man to Jesus. It's desperation that brings us to Jesus. Now, someone, some of you might say, well, are you saying that God made this boy sick so that he could teach this man a lesson about Jesus, so he could come and find out about his faith? And I don't know. I don't know why God did that. Maybe he might have. The one thing I can tell you is that God's ways are mysterious. He doesn't reveal to us all of the purposes of his ways. All I know is that for most people of faith, their faith either first emerged or their faith really deepened to new levels when they were in situations that they couldn't control, when they felt desperate. And the temptation, of course, you know, when you feel desperate, you feel out of control and you think, you know, maybe I'll turn to God. Maybe I'll turn to Jesus. Maybe I'll go to church. Oftentimes, the temptation is, you know, I feel powerless, but I know God has power. And maybe coming to God will be a way for me to kind of regain control of my life. You know, if I can get God to do what I want, he can fix all these things that I don't have control over. And so religion can often become a way of trying to regain control. That's not what faith is. And uh, that instead, the second aspect of faith, faith emerges in the midst of desperation. Second, faith doesn't look like control. Faith looks like asking. Faith looks like asking. And in the middle of verse 47, it says that this man went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son. In many ways that's what the Christian life is the Christian life is an exercise in asking. If you summarize all of Jesus teaching on prayer is ask. He says come and ask. And asking is not demanding. Asking is not a technique by which we can make God do what we want. Asking is relational right? Asking says, on the one hand, I believe that God is generous. He's good. Look, he made this beautiful world. He made me, and he gave me life, and he sustains me, and he's a father. who Father gives good gifts to his children. So it's recognizing the goodness of God why, combined with an understanding that uh, I cannot control God. God knows more than I do, and I trust he'll do what's right. And you can see in this passage that Jesus emphasizes that he's the one in control, that the man doesn't get to be in control because this man asked Jesus, hey, will you heal my son? And how does Jesus respond to him? Verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He, he rebukes the poor guy. The poor guy's son is dying and Jesus rebukes him. And he says, you're not really here to learn the deep truths about God. You're just here because you want my magic You want my magic in your life. And I love the man's response. How does he respond? Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's not defensive. He's like, you're probably right. That's probably why I'm here is for your magic. And he's also not demanding. He just again lays the request before Jesus and he asks again. And Jesus agrees to heal the man's son, but... The man now is going to have to walk home, and he's going to have—he's got—and we know that the walk was at least a day, so he's got a long walk home where he's going to have to find out whether his son was really healed. And I'll tell you, asking generally involve, involves a period of waiting. We don't know how long that waiting is, but you know, I had an experience of this this past week. One of one of the elders in our church, Art Lim. Uh, has an esophagus that has a really narrow portion of of his esophagus, where every couple years or so he gets a piece of food lodged in his esophagus. It's really scary, and he's like, you know, he gets really anxious. He has to go to the ER, and he hopes that the food is going to pass. And that happened just last week, so he's in the ER, and I'm sitting there with him, and we're praying, and I'm putting my hand on his back, and you know, it's not dislodging, and we're praying, Lord, you know, you are the great doctor and physician; you can. Make the food pass, and would you do that now? And then, you know, an hour passes, (laughs) still hasn't passed, and they're setting up to have a procedure where they're going to have to sedate him and stick a scope down his throat, and it's really, you know, kind of, you know, there's some risk in the procedure, and so we're praying again, and, you know, I put my hand on the front, and we're both kind of hoping that power is just going to pass through my hand into his (laughs) esophagus, and, you know, we're believing, and then by the end of the prayer, we're saying, okay, Lord, you know, if you heal him through the doctors, that That's good, too. All right, we'll take that. And so we finish praying, and it looks like, you know, the Lord's not going to pass the food. So the nurse comes in, brings him back into the room to do the procedure, and the anesthesiologist is about to to put him under. And right when they're going to put the mask on or whatever he's going to do, all of a sudden the food passes. He says, give me some water. I need to drink some water to see if the food passed. And, you know, you can't drink water, right, before you're going to have this procedure. And they reluctantly gave it to him, and it passed. And it, it was this experience of asking, and where the God's saying, I'm not giving you power. I'm not giving you control. But you can ask. And I'm going to make you, I'm often going to make you wait to show you that I'm going to do this in my own timing. And so it leads to the question of like, okay, if the faith means like faith emerges in desperation, and it looks like asking, how do you wait while you're asking? And um, I think that's a third thing that we uh, learn about faith in this passage is that faith trusts God's word. Faith trusts in God's word and his promise. And you see that in verse 50 where Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is the first mention of the man's faith is when Jesus spoke. It says he believed in Jesus' words. And Jesus had made a promise to him. Your son will live. And the way to walk through suffering is God makes promises to us. And we take hold of the promises. We say, this is what I'm going to hold on. This is all I have is the promises. God has made tremendous amount of promises to you. In some ways, that's God's answer to suffering in the Bible. This Bible is a whole book about suffering. It's a whole book about God's promises to you. And what promises has God made to you? If you are in Christ, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I see you. I watch you. I listen to everything you say. I care about you. And whatever shame you may experience in your life that makes you think, you know, I deserve suffering, Jesus has washed your shame away. You are God's beloved children. You are beloved. You are chosen. You are holy in his sight. And he has promised you that there is not the slightest bit of suffering that you'll experience in your life that will not be completely intentionally loaded with God's purpose and love and, and care Your story will be a good story. You'll get to the end of your story and it'll be a good story. And he promises that his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is God, lives inside of you. And you know, that doesn't mean that you have like a drop of God. You know, we all have a drop of God. There's no drops of God. If God is present anywhere, it is all of God. So that means who lives inside of you, the whole Almighty God in all of his power and wisdom is living inside your body, guiding and strengthening you and leading you to the end of this story. And Jesus is a high priest who's seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven praying for you. You think it's great to have one of your friends praying for you? You think it's great to have a pastor praying for you? The son of God knows you and is praying for you. And he promises you that, you know, if you've lost a family, you've lost your family, maybe you don't have a family. He says that throughout your life, He will literally bring hundreds of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers into your life throughout the course of your Christian life so that you will have a family and you will be alone. You uh, you will not be alone. Faith looks at this whole list of promises and says, I'm gonna hold on to those. I'm gonna believe those promises. That is how faith walks through suffering. So in the midst of desperation means asking And looking at the promises of God that are given to us in his word. And as we do that, one last thing that faith does is that faith walks the path of suffering. And this, I think, is a helpful way to think about suffering. That suffering is a path that must be walked. Walking means there's progress. There's movement. You know, it means we don't run away from suffering. Uh, it means uh, we don't deny the suffering. We also don't just lie down with resentment and kind of paralyzing fear. We don't lie down and stay in one place. Suffering is a path for us to walk through. And I think it's striking that what happens with this man is Jesus tells him that his son's going to be healed. And then he has to walk home. You know, we talked about that in, in verse 50, the second half of verse 50. The man believed the word of Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. I want you to imagine that, the anxiety of that day of walking. He's heard the promise from Jesus. He doesn't know what's happening to son. Maybe his son's already dead. What's going to happen when he gets to the end of that journey? He needs to walk the journey home. And some of you may have a path of hardship before you right now. Maybe you feel like you're bracing yourself. I see a hard, path of hardship ahead of me and I'm bracing myself for what that might be like. Well, um, Tim Keller has a, a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering and he, taught, he has a couple chapters on this theme of walking. This is what he says. Walking is something non-dramatic, rhythmic. It consists of steady repeated actions you can keep up in a sustained way for a long time. There are many people who think of spiritual growth as something like high diving. They say, I'm going to give my life to the Lord. I'm going to change all these terrible habits, and I'm going to transform. Give me another six months, and I'm going to be a new man or a new woman. That is not what a walk is. A walk is day in and day out praying, Day in and day out, Bible and Psalms reading. Day in and day out, obeying, talking to Christian friends, going to corporate worship, committing yourself to and fully participating in the life of the church. It is rhythmic. On and on and on. To walk with God is a metaphor that symbolizes slow and steady progress. That's what faith looks like in the midst of suffering, asking, waiting, trusting in God's promises, trusting his word, and walking the path that is before us. But of course, that leads to the second question. That's what it looks like for faith in suffering. What does it look like when we respond to suffering, though, in unbelief? And that first story is contrasted with the second story. You know, a lot of commentators have written about this second guy that The impression you get is people don't really like him very much. And uh, he shows some ways, some patterns of thinking that can happen to us in the midst of suffering that go with unbelief. And I want to point out two of those patterns of thinking. Okay, so first, the first pattern of thinking is my suffering is my identity. My suffering is my identity. And you see that verse 2 where it says, now... There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has uh, five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now a multitude means this is a whole community of sufferers. You know, blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And generally speaking, you know, our identities, who we are, is formed by our communities. The people that we're with and that we're around, that we have relationships with. And it says in verse 5, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, you just imagine having a condition like this for 38 years. It's hard to even know yourself apart from that condition. It's like the condition has come to define who you are. And you see that this is true about this man because in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Now, you might hear that question, do you want to be healed? And being, well, that's the obvious answer. Do you want to be healed? Of course, I want to be healed. Um, but uh, you'll notice that the man doesn't say yes, he doesn't answer it yes. And we'll look at his answer in a moment. But Jesus' question, do you want to be healed? is a searching question. That might be a question for us. Do you want to be healed? Have you become so attached to this affliction that you actually don't even want to be healed because the affliction has become your very identity? I wouldn't even know myself if I didn't have this affliction. And it's interesting that the things that we feel most bitter about in our lives are often the things that we hold on to the tightest, right? You know, if you have a grudge against someone and, you know, it makes you miserable, and yet you nurture that grudge. You talk about it. You feed it and you care for it. You almost cherish that grudge and you're very slow to let go of it. And uh, when suffering is our identity, then we become cynical and despondent. And this is, to quote Tim Keller again, this is, this is what he says, we become complicit with the affliction, comfortable with our discomfort, content with our discontent. It can make you feel noble, and the self-pity can be sweet and addicting. You know that? Like my suffering feels noble, and I love the self-pity. I'm addicted to the self-pity. And when self-pity is our response to suffering, it leads to another way of thinking, not only that suffering is my identity, but also the world is completely unjust and unfair. And that's this man's response to Jesus' question. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? How does the man respond? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps, steps down before me. His answer is, the whole world is against me. No one will help me. Everyone walks all over me, and everyone goes ahead of me. It's dripping with self-pity, right? Right? And the world is unfair to me. And you might ask, well, isn't he right? Isn't it true that no one will help him? I mean, he's probably at least partly right. The world world has been cruel to him. People have walked all over him. People have ignored him. It's been 38 years. But why is he at least partly wrong? Because Jesus is standing right in front of him. Isn't Jesus offering to help him right now? And he doesn't even see it he completely ignores it because he's internalized the idea that there is no justice in the world there is no help in the world there's no goodness in the world and he can't see the blessing and goodness of god that is actually right before him and you know maybe that's happened to you maybe you spent hours with someone you know listening to them caring for them inviting them into your life and they come to you and you say you know i uh, i'm just really mad at god he's brought me no help i'm all alone He doesn't care for me. I've experienced no love in my life. And you're sitting there thinking, what what am I? You know, chopped liver? Like, I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm the love of Christ. Christ is present through me. And it's like they can't even see the reality of that. There is a cluelessness in this man. Because even though he never says yes that he wants to be healed, Jesus heals him anyway, and uh, you see in verse 8 also, in verse 8 it says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed, but he answered them, the man who healed me the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So here's this situation where the religious leaders say, hey, you're not supposed to be carrying your bed on the, on the Sabbath. So he's about to get in trouble. Well, what does he do? He blames Jesus. He says, this guy, I don't know his name. He healed me. He told me to take up my bed. It's his fault. Don't get me in trouble. He's throwing Jesus under the bus. And, it, and now these religious leaders are going to go persecute Jesus because this guy doesn't want to take the blame. Now, listen, it is true. There is a tremendous amount of injustice and unfairness in the world. But what I'm saying is that that is not the only truth. And the Bible tells us that that's not even the deepest truth about this world. And unless we realize that, we will fall into the trap of cynicism and self-pity in the midst of our suffering. And I'll tell you, cynicism and self-pity are toxic not only to our spiritual lives but to our relationships with people around us. That's what suffering looks like in unbelief. Now, if you're here and you are a conservative type person, you might be the kind of person who would look at this second guy and say, you know, he's exactly what's wrong with our country. He feels sorry for himself. He blames everyone else. And he's ungrateful for the opportunity that's been given to him by Jesus. And he wants everyone to coddle him and make excuses for him. He wants Jesus to help him. He wants the Jews to help him. Or if you're here and you're a liberal uh, type person, you might say, the whole point of this passage is that this man could not do anything until someone helped him. That is what Jesus is doing, is helping him. And we need to help people who have been kept down by the injustice and unfairness of the world. uh, That is the only way they are going to get back on their feet. It's two pretty interesting responses interpretations of the same passage. And, well, I think that leads to our last question. Not as how does the conservative view this situation or the liberal, how do they view this situation, but how does Jesus respond to both of them? And I think it's interesting. He responds to both of them the same way. He rebukes both of them and he heals both of them. He rebukes both of them and heals. And I think both are important to understand uh, our own suffering and the suffering of others. So first, Jesus rebukes both of them. And I think that's an important thing, by the way, about Jesus' ministry. Jesus does say the rich need to care for the poor. Those who have need to care for those who have not. Jesus pairs that and says that both the rich and the poor, both the healthy and the sick, both need to repent. All people need to repent. All people need his transformation in their life. And uh, you see that Jesus rebukes the man with the sick son, son in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This man Jesus rebukes before the healing. And then Jesus rebukes the invalid in verse 14 where it says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This man he rebukes after the healing. Now, some of you might say, "Now, is it, isn't it cruel to rebuke someone who is suffering? I mean, especially the kind of suffering that both of these men are facing. Isn't it cruel? And in some w- way, the answer is yes. The Bible, if you know the story of Job, the story of Job is about a man who was suffering terribly. And his three friends came and told him about how sinful he was. And he was suffering because God was punishing him. And God said they were totally wrong. And they were judged for it. But, you know, I read a, a book recently called uh, A Severe Mercy, which is a a story written by a man who, him him and his wife, moved to Oxford, and they were deeply in love with each other, and they became Christians through some Christians. They met at Oxford, and they actually met C.S. Lewis, and they got to know C.S. Lewis. And they had this transformation, then they moved back to the States, and when they moved back to the States, this woman's faith really deepened, and she deeply loved the Lord Jesus, And this man was kind of lukewarm. He's like, you know, I think I kind of like the intellectual atmosphere of Oxford. I'm not sure I like Jesus as much living in Virginia, you know. And so um, what ends up happening is the woman gets sick and she dies. And it's just devastating to this man. And so he writes these letters to C.S. Lewis saying, talking about his complaint against God and God has done this. This is so terrible. It's ruined my life. And C.S. Lewis writes this amazingly beautiful letter back and it's recorded in the book and Lewis tells the man that he was jealous that his wife loved God more than he loved him and that her death was a severe mercy to him uh, to teach him this and that actually his wife would have wanted it and you know I'll tell you I read this book I read this letter and I was like what the, you're rebuking this man, his wife died six months ago and you're rebuking him Well, in the book, the words right after the letter, these are the words immediately after that the author says, After this severe and splendid letter, I loved Lewis like a brother, a brother and father combined, that he spoke the truth to me even in the midst of my suffering. I loved him for it. Now, in the same way, To be rebuked by Jesus, even in our suffering, is always to be deeply loved by him. If we can receive it. And we should be prepared that he does do that. We should not think him cruel for doing it. Because it's not only that Jesus responds to these two men. He rebukes both of them. Both the one that believed and the one that seems to not be having very strong faith. But also what he does for both of them is he heals both of them. Uh, both receive a healing. The man's son is healed and the invalid is healed. And you might actually say, you know, this is exactly where this passage is not like my suffering. Because, you know, if Jesus came with his magic and his magic fixed all my suffering, then I could walk through it. You know what they're doing? If, if I had his magic in my life, then I'd be happy to walk through my suffering. And my big problem is I ha- he hasn't taken my suffering away. His magic hasn't come into my life. But I think the thing to understand about this passage in Jesus' miracles is that all the people that Jesus healed eventually died. And you notice in verse 54 how it says, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus' miracles are signs It means that they are pointing to something else. These miracles aren't the real healing. They are pointing to a greater healing. And so when you say, you know, my story is not like these men, you're right. Your story is not like these men because your healing is going to be way better than their healing. You know, this official, he's long dead. His son, long dead. The invalid, long dead. They all had some sickness that came upon them that took their life. They ended up suffering. They all had a suffering that they were not magically relieved from. But if you are in Christ by faith, then the path you are now walking through this life will be is a life with suffering. And you pray, and you ask, and you wait, and you hold on to God's promises, and you refuse to make your sufferings your identity, and to be cynical, and to be addicted to self-pity because at the end of this path is a healing that far surpasses anything in these two stories what god did for jesus when he raised jesus body from the dead was he raised him to an indestructible life and if you are in christ the bible says that what god did for jesus on easter he will do for us and it's not only that he's going to heal our bodies he's going to heal the whole creation if you are in christ you will have a share in a renewed creation where there will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more children who die and we feel powerless and out of control. There will be no shame. There will be no more sin. And so when you say, I could suffer if I knew that Jesus was going to magically take my suffering away, the gospel says he is going to magically take your suffering away. So you can walk the path that is before you. And he's going to take it away on a far grander scale than either of these men ever experienced. So this life is a path of suffering that each of us need to walk. And if there is one thing to hold on to during that walk, let it be Christ. The one who himself has suffered with us and for us on the cross. And the one who will ultimately bring the great and real healing. Let's pray.